Uh, this is my first Sunday here. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, my name is Ben Seaman. I serve as our lead uh, minister here at RCC, and I'm excited that you're here. If this is your first Sunday, you're in good company. It's mine, too. And I'm excited about this new series and this new journey uh, that we'll be on together as a church over the next uh, five weeks. Before I jump into our series and, and the content in Matthew 15, I just want to say thank you to a few groups of people uh, this morning. I, I want to thank our elders, our staff, our key ministry leaders that were part of uh, the lead minister search committee. Uh, I, I know as well as you that we all live at breakneck speed. We're all busy. Our calendars are full. And, and so to, to, to kind of concentrate that time to the church and to the Lord uh, for looking for the next uh, lead minister, it, it takes a toll. I, I know that. It takes a discernment, the emotional and spiritual weight of praying and talking uh, and, and liking and not liking someone and talking about all the ins and outs. Uh, and so, so I just want to say thank you for your hard work. It, it did not go uh, unnoticed. Yeah. And I also uh, publicly want to thank uh, Tom and Karen Gertz, who, who graciously called me on the way out here uh, to New England and just uh, say congratulations, a lot of great affirming things. And, and they want you to know that, um, that I have their blessing and they're excited about the new season where the Lord may take us as we impact Salem and surrounding communities uh, over the next uh, couple, of, uh, couple of years. And, and the final group I, I want to thank is, is you, uh, the folks that call RCC home, the folks that have given uh, time, energy, uh, financial resources, uh, that, that make this great facility possible uh, so that a new generation can come to find and follow uh, Christ. And, and, and if you've been part of this church for any length of time, know that we stand on your shoulders and you give us a vision for the future. We're excited about what the Lord has for us. So let me pray and we'll jump into uh, our new series in our text this morning. Lord, thank you for uh, new beginnings and new seasons. Lord, we, uh, we commission today to you. Uh, Lord, we uh, ask for permission to be an impact uh, in this community and in this county. Uh, we, we pray that we would stay close to you as we think through what this next season looks like, that it would not be about uh, our agenda, but our discipleship as we, as we follow you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, well, this morning we're kicking off a five-week sermon series called Enemies of the heart. And we'll, we'll look at five different or four different emotions over the next four weeks of things that really can hinder our walk with the Lord and keep us from that life to the fullest that Jesus talks about uh, in John 10.10. 10. But today we're going to start by, by asking a question. And the question is really important, friends, because it hinges on what I think is the most pivotal aspect, pivotal aspect, need more coffee, of our discipleship process. And that is our heart. Uh, th that is our heart. And here's a big idea for the series. Here's a big idea for today. Who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. Who you are becoming is more important than what you're doing. And, and so oftentimes with religion and church, we only consider what's on the surface, how somebody is behaving, if they're beha behaving properly or not. Let me, let me ask you a question that I asked myself uh, probably about 10 years ago, and it's the question we're going to explore today. Have you ever asked yourself this question, man, where did that come from? 
You, you ever blown up at your kids in the middle of the grocery store? Uh, you all lied. Because <laughs> YouTube exists. And I've wasted an hour watching parents blow up at their kids. You ever done the bills in the kitchen? And you're just so frustrated that yet again another month has gone by where you can't put a little extra in savings and you just lose it on yourself? And you think, Wait, where did that where did that where did that come from? Have you ever been in a relationship and someone walks into uh, the coffee shop, the door, your house, and they say, "I'm done. Marriage is over. Talk to my talk to my uh, lawyer. I'm done." And, and and you think to yourself, "Where did that where did that come from? That that's not the person I married. That's not that's not the that's not the child I raised. Why, why are they acting this way? Where did this come from?" Uh, in about, I think it was like 2008, 2010, uh, I took a student ministry position near Boulder, Colorado, and we were taking students uh, to CIY MOVE, Christ and Youth. It's a, it's a high school summer conference that meets throughout different uh, colleges in the country. And uh, before we left, a few days before we left, I had dinner with the family. Uh, great, great adult leaders, phenomenal people, uh, still good friends with them today. And they pulled me aside and they said, hey, we're excited about your first trip with our students. And this is the largest group of students across both campuses that I've ever been responsible. So I was kind of shaking a little bit, probably need to drink more decaf. And they pulled me aside and they said, hey, uh, our, our daughter uh, will often have panic attacks. And if she has a panic attack, uh, le let me walk you through how to calm her down and so that she can talk to you. And, and she was there. Her best friend was there. And it, and it was great to know how to minister to a student should that happen. And so we had a great week. Things were going well. And then about Thursday evening around lunchtime, myself, my wife, our children's pastor and adult leader, were all uh, eating dinner together, enjoying some adult time. If you're involved in youth ministry, you know that's sacred time when you're on a trip like that. And uh, coming, <clears throat> really flying across the campus was this student's best friend. And she said, she's having a panic attack. She's having a panic attack. So we got up and ran across, <clears throat> excuse me, the commons area of the college. I don't know how this happened, but I was the first one there, okay? Yeah, the first service laughed. There's a reason why I was a catcher in Little League when I played baseball and a goalie because I don't think running is just not working smart. It's just working hard. But for, for whatever reason, I got there first. I grabbed her right hand with my right hand. I put my left arm around her uh, shoulders, and I, and I asked her to walk with me, and I got her to focus on her breathing, and, I cal and she eventually calmed down. But before she calmed down, somebody touched either my shoulder or my arm, and I think I blacked out because I don't know what happened after that because I was so amped up on, you know, this is my first time away from the church taking over 100 students to a, 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 a camp. Like, you know, we had two Greyhound buses, two, two campuses were going, tons of volunteers. Like, like, it was a lot. It was the first time I did this. And so my wife later told me that somebody touched my arm to see how I was, just generally caring for me. But I turned around and went full poltergeist mode on my wife. Yeah, uh, we've been married eight years. My wife, um, the children's pastor, the adult leader, the young gal that was having the panic attack, <laughs> and her best friend. 
And my wife later that day said, you, you look back and you said, I've got everything under control. And we had never, <clears throat> I had never, you know, we were married, I don't know, four or five years at the time. I'd never, I'd, I'd never he- heard you speak like that to anybody. So we all backed away, just kind of walked away. And honestly, friends, I don't remember that. But I thought that night to my wife, I was like, where, where did that come from? Well, when I got back to the church, I debriefed the week with my boss, our family pastor. I said, um, you know, you know how you talked about your, uh, your counselor that helped you out when you were young and there was some stuff going on between your, your mom and your dad? Yeah, I think I, uh, I think I need to talk to somebody. Pretty sure it's not cool to blow up on your wife and the children's pastor in public in front of a thousand students. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not. And, and that's when I began what, what I would call the inward journey, that I would focus on who I was becoming as a Christ follower more than how I was behaving. Because I thought, well, as long as I behave well, look good in front of the parents, look good in front of the students, I got job security. But oftentimes, how we behave doesn't always match what, was, what is going on in our heart. And you know this to be true. This is why it's so important that who you're becoming is more important than how you're behaving. Andy Stanley wrote a book, Enemies of the Heart, where this series is sort of inspired by. He says something interesting in the book. He says this, Perhaps the major reason we rarely stop to monitor our hearts is that it was never encouraged. As children, we were taught instead to monitor our behavior. In other words, we're taught to behave. If we behave properly, good things happen, kind of like karma. But regardless of what was going, regardless of what was going on inside of our hearts, like I love my parents. I had good parents. They had three boys. God bless them. They did the best that they could. But let me tell you something. When I was in high school, uh, dating girls, and I had a car that was our symbol of freedom back in the day. Now it's iPhones. Um, because parents drive kids wherever they want, the personal Uber. But let me tell you something. When I went on dates at 17, my dad would say, make sure you pay for your date, right? You open the door, you pull out the chairs, you ask her father when is curfew, and you better drop her off 30 minutes before her curfew. Not once. When I was 17, my dad looked at me and said, hey, before you go on your date, make sure you guard your heart. Right? No, no, no father has said that to their son, going on a day, at least, at least mine didn't. And we, we kind of have this understanding that, um, that, that, that outward behavior can dictate what's going on in the heart. And, and friends, that's not always true. Sometimes we think that a person that goes to church all the time, they're an uber volunteer, they're super religious and giving, so they give 90% of their income and they live off of 10 and they make us all feel bad right? And they're, they're involved in small groups. They're, they're always here at the church. They, they keep the church running. And we think, man, all of that good outward behavior must reflect that that person's heart is in the right place. But th- friends, that's not always the case. We know that that's true physically of our own physical hearts. Famous basketball player Pistol Pete experiences himself. Phenomenal athlete, would score, averaged 44 points a game, played for three NBA uh, teams, was one of the highest NCAA uh, score, the top at, at one point, uh, played a pickup basketball game a uh, few, uh, not, not, not too long after he retired. And as you know the story, if you're a sports junkie like I am, you know that he fell over and collapsed and he died of a heart attack. And what the autopsy revealed 
was that he went with an undiagnosed congenital heart defect. He was only born with one coronary artery, and it actually shown the moment when he had passed. And we look at phenomenal athletes like LeBron James and, and uh, Michael Jordan, and we think, like, man, th- their physical prowess, like, they're so ripped. Their body fat is next to nothing. Their physical heart must be in good working condition. And you and I both know that that's not always the case. And this is what Jesus is going to talk about, friends, in Matthew chapter 15. So I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 15. If you don't, that's fine. And if you're new, we always put the scriptures on the screen for you to follow along. And Jesus is going to have a conversation with three groups of people, uh, Pharisees, his disciples, and the crowd that's kind of watching to see what happens. And Pharisees basically are modern-day theological professors, very well respected. They know the Torah, and the Torah is the first five books of your Old Testament. It's what uh, Jews follow today. And, and, and most of Jesus' questions that were asked of him come from the Old Testament, like this one. And so, so here's what Matthew records in Matthew 15. He says this, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. That's a big deal. Let's stop. Here's why. That would be the equivalent of theological seminary professors from Harvard coming from Cambridge to Salem, New Hampshire, because there's a new young lead minister in town who's very liberal in how he's interpreting Scripture. Not not me, I'm just saying, so to speak. And they ask this question. So so Jesus' reputation is getting high enough in the theological food chain where the key leaders of Jesus' day about the, the Torah, how to interpret the scriptures, how to live a life pleasing to God, they, they find Jesus. And they ask him this question. Of all the questions they could have asked him, they ask him this question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Basically, why are you bugging the system, Jesus? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And every mom in this room says, amen, right? <laughs> wash your hands before you eat. <clears throat> and, and you know what? <clears throat> They're right. In the Torah, in Levitical law, in the book of Leviticus, you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat because a Jew is not supposed to touch anything that could be unclean. And so they're coming from Cambridge to have this, have this conversation with this young, uh, supposed liberal hipster pastor that is interpreting the scriptures a little too loosely for their liking. And Jesus responds in typical rabbinical fashion, not with an answer, but with a story that eventually will get to how he wants to respond. And Jesus says, okay, you want to play uh, who can follow the rules better? Well, I have something I want to ask you. And this is how Jesus replies in verse 3. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. Right? Jesus is saying there is a rule in in, uh, Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, that says you're supposed to honor your father and mother. And if not, well, that's the last time you're going to play Fortnite, kids, right? Some of you got that. If you don't get that, ask your grandkids what Fortnite is. There is a rule in the Old Testament that if you do not honor your parents, they can take you out back, and that's that's the end. Jesus is not saying that doesn't exist. He's saying it exists. This is the bone that Jesus has to pick in verse 5. But you say 
that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God. So let me stop right there because this kind of gets heady. In the first century, people would bring what we do, what we bring is called an offering, some money aside to give to the church to help uh, the future impact of the ministry here, here in Salem and beyond. And Jesus is saying that when people come to your synagogue, they have parents that have uh, fallen ill or they have parents that are in need. And he says, you say that anyone who declares what they might have been used to help their family, that, that check that they were going to give to RCC this Sunday, right? But they're, they're torn. They also want to take care of their parents. And Jesus says, that gift that has been to help mom and dad is devoted to God. You tell them they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Exactly. Silence. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And then one of the most popular church words about what people think church is filled with, he says, you hypocrites. If the Pharisees are asking Jesus his question, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? They're asking Jesus to tell his disciples, why aren't you behaving properly? But when Jesus responds with his side of the commandment, when there is a rule <clears throat> or a law that Jewish families are supposed to take care of their parents, this is before retirement communities. If you don't take care of your parents in their old age, they have nothing left. There's no social security. There's no uh, retirement communities to live in. And Jesus says, you have people coming to your synagogue with checks ready to give to your synagogue to support that ministry. But you know full well their parents are in need for whatever issue. They're sick. They need to move or whatever. And you tell people, no, no, no. Forget your parents. You have to give money. Like, Jesus, you're, you're lining your pockets with cash at the expense of telling your church not to love their parents. Pharisees, you, you think that obeying the religious law will actually give you freedom, will actually, actually find, you actually think that's how you display love. And Jesus is saying, no, no, how you love people is how you love God. You hypocrites. And it's interesting that Jesus would say hypocrites because it's a Greco-Roman theat theatrical term, Right? I love going to the movies. I love going to plays with my wife. But in the first century, often it would be men that would act out different plays. And there were only a, <clears throat> excuse me, a certain amount of men. So oftentimes, they would come out on stage and wear a mask that would display that character's persona. And then for act two, they would run off stage, put a different mask on to play a different character. So what Jesus is saying is when you tell people that their behavior is more important than who they're becoming, that being outwardly religious is more important than taking care of mom and dad, you're acting like a hypocrite. You're wearing different faces in different places uh, just so that you can look good in front of other people. And we do this, don't we? Yes is the answer. We do, we do this. We, we try to look good for others, but that doesn't always mean our heart is in the right place. And often, in our false self, in our own insecurity, in our own, under, uh, our own underdevelopment, we actually use it as a wall to keep people at a distance, to not really allow them to get to know us. And that's, that's why it's so important, friends, 
that, that as we start this new season, that we really lean into who we're becoming. Because when we answer that question, we allow Jesus to have full reign of our hearts, the behavior and the action, the impact, that's going to follow. And Jesus continues to talk about these Pharisees. He says this in verse 8, These people, the Pharisees, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus calls the crowd to them and says, listen and understand. So the disciples in this crowd are watching this conversation. Then he turns to them in the Pharisees' presence and he says, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples, disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were upset when you heard this? I don't know if he cares. <laughs> and in verse, uh, in, in verse 13, he says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled by the roots. You can ignore that. We'll get back to that in a second. Leave them. They, the Pharisees, people that focus on outward behavior, they are blind guides. If, blind, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. I love Peter's response. Explain to us the parable again. And Jesus says, are you still so dull? Jesus asked. Because Jesus is thinking, or Peter's thinking like, wow, I don't have to wash my hands, so as a Jew I can have that ham sandwich? This is great. I love, I love Jesus. And Jesus says, look, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach, then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil things evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, sorry, mom, that doesn't defile them. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand that who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. Because Jesus says these Pharisees, when they throw their worship services together and people flock to their synagogues, it's like they honor me with their lips, but, but they're not really into following me. It, 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 it's like they, they throw a party for me as a guest of honor and they forget to invite me. Like talk about a major blunder, right? You're throwing a party for your mother-in-law's birthday and you forget to invite her, right? Like, come on, guys, you've been there, right? You forget to invite her. Like, what a mess, because they know that the real Jesus, if they would put themselves face to face with the real Jesus, I mean, that, that would mean the walls would have to come down. That, that, that would mean that they would have to give uh, Jesus full access and permission to what's going on in here, regardless of how they're behaving. And, and Andy Stanley's right. We do reward good behavior, but just because someone is displaying good behavior does not mean their heart has been redeemed, does not mean their heart has been restored, does not mean that their heart is actually at peace. And, and these are Pharisees. These are people that know the Old Testament. Of all the people in the first century, you would think the Pharisees would be people that would care more about who they're becoming versus what they're doing. And friends, that's what religion does. R religion makes us very arrogant, because we're good at following rules. But ultimately, what religion does, we learn that we can't follow every rule every single time. 
it leads us to, to despair. And so we'll keep the front on as long as we can until someone asks us, how are we doing really? I'll say it again because I want to drive it home. Who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. And Jesus gives us two illustrations that I want to share with you in closing. That the kind of disciples we can be and the kind of church we can be uh, for our town and the surrounding communities. The first kind of church we can be, uh, we can be blind guides. This is what Jesus calls the Pharisees. And blind guys, guides care all about outward appearance, just looking good. Like, it's Sunday, I'm going to do my religious hour, I'm going to go home and that's it, right? I'm, I'm not going to get plugged in, I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to get connected to a small group. I'll just do bare minimum. As long as I look good, I have a church to identify with when I pass, that'll be in the newspaper, so people think I'm a good person, that, that's it. And, and you can do that. You, you, can, you can be a blind guide. You, you can, RCC can be a church that is full of blind guides. But if Jesus is telling the truth, which I think he is, at best, all we'll do is lead people into behaving really, really well and not becoming who Christ created them to be and to not go deeper into the cross and, and not really fully embrace the grace that was given to them. Not, 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 not a one-time deal as a sinner, but grace that helps them figure out what happened to me as a kid. What happened to me in my young adult years? What is happening to me now? And Jesus says, at, at, at best, you, you, you'll, you can be a church of, of, uh, of blind guides, and you may draw a big crowd, but at best, you're going you're gonna to lead them into a ditch. And whatever big thing you might have in RCC grows to 5 million people, and you're just a bunch of blind guides, you're not going to find life. You're going to find a lot of rules that you can obey, and you'll feel good about them, but ultimately, you're not going to find life. And Jesus says, you can be a different kind of church, though. You can be a strong oak tree. I love the image of trees in Scripture. Because when a city was, uh, was, was overtaken by the Roman Empire or a, a neighboring city, one of the things that they would do that would symbolize putting uh, the boot on the enemy's neck is after they won the war, they would go into your city and chop down all of the trees. Because in the first century, trees were protection, they were shade, and they were nourishment, and they were life-giving to that city. And, and Jesus gives this beautiful Im image, he talks about things being planted in this text, that a church that is a strong oak tree built on the gospel for their town, for their community, will be a church that provides shade for their community, that will provide nourishment for their community, and will provide protection. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And if you think about it, these blind guides that are walking around aimlessly, eventually they're, they're going to hit their head on a tree, right? They're going to hit their head on a healthy church, and they're going to criticize it, and they can't figure out why so many people are flocking to that kind of church because they're experiencing so much life transformation. And I want to read to you in closing a scripture out of Isaiah 61. I want you to think about somebody that's not here right now, right? I love the fact that we have empty chairs in this room because it represents people that are not yet here, people that have not found hope, people that 
are sleeping in, people that are busy, people that have things going on today, and people that are waiting for someone to invite them. I want you to think about a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker as I read this text. I want you to get a vision and a picture of what Jesus may have for you as an individual Christ follower, as well as for us as a church. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And poverty can look like drug-infested neighborhoods, but also poverty can look like million-dollar homes and gated communities. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives, and to release from, dark, from the darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all of those who, think about this friend of yours that's in your head, to comfort everyone who is mourning in this town, provide uh, those who grieve in Zion, to bestow everyone in Salem a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Everyone in Salem would receive the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. What? What a picture. What a picture that Jesus is painting for us as a church, that we'd be a church about relationships and caring about people that come through our doors, more about who they're becoming instead of how they're behaving. Our behavior is never going to be good enough for the Lord. But Jesus' behavior was perfect. He lived that perfect life for us and died the death that we should have died. And we get to celebrate that every single weekend. And there is a party going on here in Salem that your friends and coworkers need to be a part of. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for this new season, this new opportunity, this, this idea that we get to be a church uh, in, in Salem that is a strong oak tree that we, that we would choose, right? Just because I declare it doesn't mean it's true, but that we would choose to be a place of shade, a place of protection, and a place of nourishment that people would find hope, that people would say, okay, RCC is a place where I can drop my behavioral defenses, and, and I can be real. And this is a people that cares more about how my heart is being developed and then the insecurities of my behavior. Thank you that grace gives us all this opportunity to grow as a body of believers and to impact our community. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.